This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Away. Away makes first-class luggage at coach prices that allow you to charge your phone on the go. For $20 off your order, go to awaytravel.com slash fool and use the promo code fool. That's awaytravel.com slash fool, promo code fool. Motley Fool Answers is also brought to you by Thumbtack. Thumbtack.com provides a fast and easy way to find and hire skilled local professionals. Go to Thumbtack.com to find pros for everything from home improvement to event planning to personal wellness and more. That's Thumbtack.com. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Also joined by Sean Gates. He's a financial planner with Motley Fool Wealth Management, a sister company of the Motley Fool. Thanks, guys, for coming in and helping me on that intro. Every year, members of Motley Fool One, Supernova Pro, and Options get together at Fool HQ to learn and laugh at an event we call Fool Fest. So for today's episode, we're answering questions from Fool Fest. I basically ran around and put my phone in people's faces and said, ask a question. So questions like, how much should you allocate to international stocks? Is long-term insurance worth it? And did bro really go to seminary? All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So yeah, we just had Fool Fest a couple weeks ago, which is this great big get together of Motley Fool members, and I it's don't the know. Woodstock for fools. How's I guess that? so. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of old school fools there. We're like, I've been, I've been reading you since the AOL days, and um, it's great. It's a great time to just get together and hang out with people who love to talk about stocks and investing, and. I had a great time, basically, every time someone would say, I love the podcast, I would say, great, ask a question. And some people were very nice to actually have questions for us. So we're just going to go through them today. Um, now, the audio, there might be a lot of noise in the background because, like Bro said, it's kind of a rowdy Woodstock for investing. All right, so our first question comes to us from Paige. Hi, I'm Paige, and I'm from San Diego. Robert had mentioned that he thinks that international stocks are going to outperform U.S. stocks over the next several years. So I was wondering if that impacts his recommendation for how much of your portfolio you should have in international stocks right now. Hi, Paige. Always great to hear from Paige. I don't know if you know Paige, but she is quite awesome. She seems lovely. She is lovely. So my expectation and it's, of course, not a guaranteed expectation, but my expectation that international stocks will outpace U.S. stocks is really comes down to valuation. Um, there is a website run by a company called Star Capital. It's a Germany wealth advisory firm, and they rank the valuations of the 40 biggest national stock markets from cheapest to most expensive. U.S. is number 35. So does the sixth priciest market right now. It's reflected in the PEs, but also in dividend yields. So if you were to look at the yield on U.S. stock markets like 1.8%. A diversified portfolio of international stocks is yielding closer to 3%, which is another way to sort of gauge valuation. So that's really what it comes down to. So has it affected my recommendations? About a year and a half ago or so, I upped the international allocation in the RYR model portfolios. So it has reflected the general allocation that I recommend for people. Yeah, and I just always like to provide some real-world examples. So. I'm in the robo-advisor space, kind of, with Motley Fool Wealth Management, and one of our primary competitors is Betterment, and for an aggressive allocation, their allocations is pushing over 50% in combined international exposure between developed markets and emerging markets. Which that is seems high. really high. Which is super high, and the underlying component of that is that most of the robo-advisor firms use Black-Litterman models, which is sort of a mathy formula to calculate risk versus reward and where you want to target capital allocation. And Motley Fool Wealth Management 
we also our black lettermen would would have us allocating close to 50% in those areas but we don't follow <laughs> no that? but we put our finger on the scale a little bit to rein it in it gets closer to the rule your retirement sort of statistics. Right. In our model portfolios, it ranges from 10% to 30%, depending on your risk tolerance. And part of why some people might limit it, and I want to speak for your group, is that, frankly, international stocks are more volatile. And part of it is just behavioral. Yep. People are less likely to stick with international stocks because they perceive them as riskier, and they, they're not as familiar with them. So that's part of why someone might limit them. And I will say, in a recent Bloomberg article, Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, says, I've never invested in international stocks, and I don't currently, and I really? probably never will. He's, he's At 88, he's split evenly between stocks and bonds, and they're all U.S. index funds. And, and if you look at the, the period that he cites from 1993 to the recent time, it, it's proved true. U.S. stocks have outperformed international stocks. It's a, it's a little bit of cherry-picking the figures, because there are times like the 80s and the first decade of the 2000s when international stocks won. So, we all love Jack Bogle here at The Motley Fool, so you don't need international stocks, but I personally have a good allocation to them. Yeah, and I think, to your point about behavior, these things take such a long time line to play out. When the math model says you should have 50% in, is someone who is in that portfolio with 50% of their money in international stocks actually going to hold it to have the returns play right, out? Exactly. And the answer is usually no. We have folks call into Motley Fool Wealth Management who see our allocation with you know 20 to 30% in international, and they're like, I want 0% oh, yeah. international. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, okay. Well, we've talked about that before on the show. Like, Not only are the investor protections better here in the United States as well, but also our markets are a little bit more stable. So, um, you can't compare international markets to the U.S. for a number of reasons. Yeah, and, and some people will say, and, and I think Jack Bogle would be one of these people saying that if you own a diversified portfolio of U.S. companies, you're already getting international exposure. And almost half of the revenue from the companies in the S&P 500 come from overseas. So it's not like you won't benefit by global growth if you just stay with the U.S. Um, but I, for me personally, when you when you look at sort of a diversified portfolio that's regularly rebalanced, you do get a little bit of a diversification boost, a little bit of a performance boost, depending on the time frame you're looking at. So, generally, bottom line, international exposure, roughly, you're saying 20%? I'd, I think 10 to 30%. 10 to 30. 10% for people who are conservative or in retirement, up to 30% if you're more aggressive. Um, but you just have to be plan. You just have to plan to stick with it because there will be long periods where international stocks don't do as well. Yeah. All right. Our next question comes to us from Mark. Mark Seaman from Canada. I was uh, on the plane down to Fool Fest. I was reading um, a uh, an article from from the Fool about should you uh, spend your money on, in retirement or should you invest it? Something to that effect. And looking for guidance as to when you're saving and investing too much money and you're not living life and spending enough of it. So, Mark is talking about an article that I wrote, actually, and it was based on a couple of recent studies that have found that in that roughly that first decade of the 2000s, retirees could have been spending more than they did. Basically, what they saw is that the wealth of retirees grew through that first decade of the 2000s, despite the fact that we had two brutal bear markets. So, how could that be? Well, part of it was they're conservative in their spending to begin with, and their spending declined about 2.5% every year. The conclusion of these two studies was basically, hey, retirees, relax a little bit, spend a little bit more. One of the studies found that actually wealthy retirees could spend up to 50% more. Um, 
I'm not sure I totally agree with that, but um, I think it's a worthwhile question. And if you save for all your entire life, maybe you should be spending a little bit more. How do you help people determine that, Sean, down in your area of fooldom? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I should clarify first, uh, you need to stop stealing my articles. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> what? But no, the, the, the short answer is, yeah, we, that's, this is a common question. And actually, one of the primary value adds that Motley Fool Wealth Management can offer folks, a lot of people who come to us are already money-minded. And so, they're in much better shape than the median or average person already. And so, we can, with some specificity, tell them, you can actually spend more money and here's by how much. And that is a valuable thing because you get to the core of Mark's question, which is, hey, you don't need to be frugal anymore or, or pay attention to the longer term goals. You should actually enjoy your retirement now. I mean, I recently helped a woman um, retire early and she gets to travel now. And, and she wouldn't have done that, I don't think, if it wasn't for the guidance that we were able to provide. And so this question comes up all the time. And I, I think people overestimate in our models, we will reduce annual spending by about 1% to 2%. I think in your article, it was referencing a potential 2.5% yep. decline on average. Yep. There are many studies that say it's one, in that range of 1% to 2%. And I think most people don't account for that in their retirement projections. Any online calculator just inflates your sort of 80% retirement goal, and it doesn't account for that decreasing spend in retirement. Yeah. And so basically, what you're saying is that you help people doing this through financial planning software, right? So it does yeah. take a tool to figure this out. Yeah, I mean, there are some simple shortcuts. So, I mean, I think as a function of the 4% withdrawal rule, uh, one of the monikers is you can take your, your desired annual spend, multiply it by 25, and that gives you the rough figure that you need to retire. There are some people who might argue for or against that. But that multiply by 25 implies a 4% withdrawal rate. And so, if you assume that you're deflating retirement expenses a little bit, that 25 number might be 20. And right. so, you could multiply your annual spend by 20. If it's $50,000, just as an, an example, that'd be a million dollars that you need to have saved for retirement. If you're all in, retirement expense was 50 grand. Right. I will say, one of the the outcome, or one of the points that were was trying to be made in these studies, that people are being too frugal, they're too afraid of running out of money. And my opinion is, if that's the way they are, so be it, right? I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong by having a, a big fat emergency fund in your portfolio. And some people do get stressed out by seeing the size of their portfolio go down in retirement. And if, if that will cause you distress and will cause you not to be able to enjoy your retirement, then fine. Yeah, and I think another component that gets lost is. Folks want to leave assets to the next generation. So, so that bucket of money might not just be for their retirement spend. It might be, I want to maximize as much as I can leave to charities or my kids or things like that. So there's another component there. But, but I think generally people are a little bit over-cautious. Hey, that's a good segue to our next question. Did you do that on purpose? Totally. I'm Tim Parrish, and I'm from Harrisonburg, Virginia. And I have a question for Allison and Robert. I've been convinced that money is mostly important for building a future. So I have retirement funds and I want to, I'm 57, I want to when I graduate and pass on to have the, at least the same amount of money in my retirement accounts to pass on to my family or even more. So I'm looking for ideas of how to best do that. I assume he means graduate from life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, basically, he wants to. Uh, I mean, yeah. 
Right. Don't we all? Don't we all? Um, so, right. So, here's an example of someone who wants to play it a little safer, wants, has the next generation in mind. And I think that's, that's perfectly fine as long as you can do that and enjoy your retirement because you probably saved and scrimped for decades to build up your retirement funds. We want you to be able to enjoy a little bit of it. Yeah. Is it is it crazy to think I want to make this much money in retirement to not deplete my funds at all or even make more money in retirement? Is that a crazy idea? No, in fact, that's what some of these studies have shown that that's what most retirees are actually doing and and making more money in retirement. Right. And and there was a study that we talked about I think probably 2 years ago because I went to a I don't remember. It was a retirement consortium and and there were other studies that showed that people generally don't deplete their wealth throughout retirement. The only exception is people who have significant health care costs or mm. long-term care. Those are the factors that will cause you to deplete your portfolio. Otherwise, most people actually don't deplete their portfolio because I think, first of all, it just makes them nervous. Yeah. And second of all, if you are living off 4 to 5% of your portfolio and your portfolio is growing 6 to 10%, it's, perfect, it's perfectly doable. Yeah, and, and another thing I think that comes into this equation is there's this really key fulcrum point, which is when you retire. And so, when you're allocating your portfolio to risk-reward assets, you're usually aggressive at a younger age, and then as you approach that fulcrum point, you become more conservative. And a lot of folks then stay conservative. And there's an opportunity, once you've bridged that you know three to five year retirement transition gap, to become more aggressive in your portfolio over time because you've met your needs, you've figured out your retirement budget, and you can start to become more aggressive for the causes that that we're referring to here or passing on wealth to kids. It starts to take on their timeline. And so I think it is very possible to have the estate goals or the wealth goals that you want in retirement. So is right. it just about being more aggressive, having more riskier stocks in your portfolio? Or what, what should Tim do to... to not deplete this. That that could be part of it. The other part is that Tim would just have to adjust his spending in retirement based on what happens to a portfolio. So if his goal is to have five hundred, leave five hundred thousand dollars to his kids, if his portfolio grows beyond that, he can spend more. If something happens to the stock market where it drops below that, then he has to be willing to cut back until his portfolio recovers. But if I were a financial planner, I would say, okay, all right. So how much do you want to leave as a bequest, and then let's just manage your retirement expenses and investments around that. You know, another thing that you can do to help calculate it is, a lot of folks wait until the very they leave an inheritance where you can come up with annual gifting plans, which will allow you to figure out as part of your retirement budget how much you should be gifting. So in this case, if he had a specific, you know, I want to leave as much as I spend in retirement. Well, if you start mapping that out and you say, okay, I'm giving twenty-four thousand dollars a year to the causes that I want, then you start to quickly realize. How much that you can actually add back and say, okay, well, ten years into retirement, I've gifted five hundred thousand, and I spent five hundred thousand, so I'm on track. So, so it gives you a way to measure these goals. Right. I think that's a great point. Like, if, if one of your goals is to give money to charities or to relatives, why not do it while you're still alive totally. and, and bask in their gratitude? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before we get to the rest of the questions, I want to give a shout out to our friends at Away for supporting our podcast. Away makes affordable, high-quality suitcases that charge your phone and start at just $225. They're ultra-durable, lightweight, they come with a lifetime guarantee, and even a risk-free 100-day trial period. So if at any point you decide it's not for you, you can return it for a full refund, no questions asked. 
So we actually got, to, and by we, I mean other people who have other podcasts here at The Motley Fool, got to take one of these suitcases out to South by Southwest. So I was asking Dylan from Industry Focus, like, what'd you think about it? And he was like, his eyes widened. He's like, I've got a great story. Do you want to hear my story? And I'm like, okay, I'm ready for your story. So he's like, we're in Austin and our plane gets delayed. And so I went to the bar and I had a beer with some of the other guys, like Chris Hill and them. And I was able to charge my phone while I was having a beer. <laughs> for him, I was like, cool, cool, cool story, Dylan. Cool story, bro. Um, cool story, bro. Uh, but for him, he was just like, it was the most amazing, life-changing experience. So, uh, And it is kind of cool, the idea of being able to charge your phone from your suitcase. I'm glad you clarified, because I just imagined him having it plugged into an outlet in the wall. Why you and, have a beer mug? Or, or a beer mug. <laughs> no, the suitcase has like a char- like a charger. So you can charge it from your suitcase, so you yes, don't have to go huddle around it's the pretty cool. outlets. They're pretty cool, but they're also really cool suitcases. All right, so here's the deal. You can get free shipping anywhere in the lower 48 states, and Away has a special offer just for listeners of this show. For $20 off, go to awaytravel.com slash fool and use the promo code fool at checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash fool, promo code fool. Head back to the questions. The next one comes from uh, our friend here at The Fool, Brian Withers. Brian Withers, New Jersey. So Robert talked about one time, the bigger the house you have, the more money you spend to put stuff in it. And I was wondering if he had any facts or backup data on that. I love that question. So no, Brian, I never have facts backing up what I say. I pretty much, I have this 10-year-old in another country who writes all my articles, so I have no idea. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) What? Next question. <laughs> the answer is no, Brian. So, what do you think? Am I full of BS or are there facts behind this? So, this is actually a really great question because it is hard to find hard statistics about whether your expenses are higher as a function of the size of your house. But oh wait, you did you actually did research? I did. This is why we have Sean I on because he actually does yeah, research. I might have some research, but continue, Sean. No, you already said you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, the, the Census Bureau comes out with a study called the Characteristics of New Housing. So as of 2014, an interesting fact is that over the last 40 years, the median and average home size has increased a thousand square feet. Wow. While the average and median household, like per person unit, has decreased by half a person. And so if you look at those statistics in aggregate, that's a 95% increase in per person square footage. And you have to assume that the prices or the expenses has increased, right? Because right. there's no way that fewer people in a doubly large house have less things. It would just mm-hmm. be an empty, vacant ghost house. Right. <laughs> and I will say that I mean a lot of, of, of the research on this is really about price more than size, but generally, of course, within the same market, a bigger house is going to cost you more money. So just intuitively, you would know a house that is more expensive, you're going to pay more for property taxes, you're going to pay more for homeowners insurance, and things like that. Obviously, a bigger house, there's more to furnish and stuff like that. Um, there is a report that came out by, from the Center for Retirement Research from Boston College that said if uh, someone who was retired who had a $250,000 house downsized to a $150,000 house, their, their expenses would drop by more than $3,000 a year because of 
utilities and taxes and things like that. So, yes, Brian, there is some research behind what I said. Well, I happen to know that Brian is in the middle of downsizing. I know. So I, he's probably I pretty he, excited to I hear that. I think he was looking for some validation on that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Next question comes to us from Daryl. I'm Daryl from New York City, Brooklyn. Oh, I'm more curious on why y'all decided to go towards just recommending index funds and not recommending any more mutual funds, as y'all had shown on your um, letters, the newsletters a few months ago. So I should also add that Daryl's first question was, how do I get the best mortgage for my new spanking house? <laughs> Does it actually spank I got him? so much grief. So, so Allison, yeah. in one episode, meant to say brand, brand spanking, spanking new, new house, house, but instead she said her brand new spanking house. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so I got so much grief at Fool Fest for saying I'm continuing to get grief to this day for saying that, uh, and Daryl was no exception. Um, yes, well, isn't he also the one who, who made the Fraggle Rock observation? Yes, apparently when Daryl hears the show, he pictures me as Red Fraggle. Uh, and bro is boober. That's <laughs> which is which is visually pretty spot on. <laughs> so that's why I'm thinking we need to go as red and boober for Halloween well, next year. Sounds, sounds great. Anyway, to answer Daryl's physically question. spot on too. <laughs> no, <laughs> boober. Uh, so I think what Daryl is referring to is. So, in the history of the Rural Retirement Service, of which I've been an advisor now, and our anniversary is just now, 13 years this month. Oh, Congrats. happy anniversary. Thank you so very much. Um, at one point, we also had a separate service called Champion Funds, and then the two joined, so that we had RYR, but also we were covering um, actively managed funds, actively managed fund portfolio, up until the last few months. So, why did we do that? Well, first of all, the evidence is clear that generally speaking, most actively managed funds have difficulty outperforming a relevant index fund. So the recent research from the Standard Poor's Indices versus Active Scorecard finds that over the last five years, 85% of actively managed funds could not beat a relevant index fund. So just by those numbers alone, it makes sense to, to at least have part of your portfolio in index funds. I will say there was, as I explained in the article when I made this announcement, part of it was an editorial decision because based on basically article clicks and surveys of our readers, most people really weren't buying actively managed funds, so we just decided it wasn't worth writing about them. But as I made clear in that article, that doesn't mean we don't think you shouldn't own actively managed funds. I own many actively managed funds. I'm on the Fool's 401k committee. We have plenty of actively managed funds within our 401k. Just this morning, I rebalanced my 401k, I sold some money that I have in US index funds to buy some international and buy more of my international. Eating your own cooking. That's right, my actively managed, and it's an actively managed fund. So it's, we're not saying you shouldn't have actively managed funds, but just for the RYR service, it just made sense for us to focus on ETFs and index funds. And someone else at FullFest was, was like, why does bro hate individual stocks so much? Where does that come from? Well, I think maybe it comes from the fact that that's just not what we really focus on on this show. Oh. Like, if you want to talk about individual stocks, I mean, try any one of our other shows. Yeah, right. And our focus is really more about retirement. And I would finance. say 20% of my 401k is an individual stock. So just looking at it from this morning, yeah. Yeah, I would say almost 100% of mine is an individual stock. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm younger. So, yeah. bro I- doesn't hate stocks, he doesn't hate actively managed funds. And I think a huge component of this, I think we've referenced the Dahlbar study on this program several times, but but a huge component of why 
you, as a financial advisor, it's easy to recommend index funds because it can lead to good results. Is just investor behavior. It's much easier to stick with index funds because there's no expectation of underperformance, right? You 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 get market returns. So if the market is down 10%, you're down 10%. Mm-hmm. You're not down 20%. Or if the market is up 10% and you're up five, you're like, well, no, I got to find the next thing that's up 12. These things lead to the doll bar effect and underperformance. So having index funds as your bulwark or sort of spine of your portfolio is an easy recommendation to lead to better results. Right. And just so for people who aren't familiar with the doll bar study, and there are some criticisms of it, but basically people tend to underperform the actual funds that they own just because they buy when they're high and they sell when they're low. Yep. They move in and out at the wrong times. Right. A lot of people, though, don't really care about beating the market. They just don't want to lose money. Right. True. True. <laughs> Do you? No. Know I mean, with your experience with people, are most people like really actively focused on? Oh, did we beat the market today, Sean? Or are they more just like, I just don't want to lose any money. Well, so the interesting thing, I think you're spot on in that most people, if they are gaining money, are you know fine. But there is a component where they hear, you know, I heard that mm. the market is up X. Mm-hmm. Why am I not? Up yeah. X, and yeah. that's the component that I'm speaking to. Where yeah. in index funds that can't happen, you are up X, whatever, right. whatever it is. Yeah. There's also there's when you go with index funds, you're skipping a step that you may not want to take. When you start with your portfolio, you start with saying like, how much do I want in U.S. stocks? How much in international? How much in bonds? That's the first decision. And if you choose index funds, you're done. Yeah. You just buy those index funds. If you're going at actively managed funds, then you then have to find actively managed funds for each of those categories and stay on top of them. So there's a certain amount of, I don't know if I want to call it laziness, but <laughs> by just going with index funds, it's you're just making the one allocation decision and you're done. Yeah, this conversation is super interesting because you could. T- we didn't even touch on expenses. Obviously, they're lower, and you know there there is an argument that says if everyone starts to invest in indexing, then the price valuation component. You know, there are stocks like Google and Apple that have crazy price multiples, and that's because they're so heavily weighted. And when you invest in the index, everyone is buying that weighting. And so it opens up the opportunity for active managers to perform better because they can pick better valuation mm, stocks. Yeah. Um, but it's an, it's an interesting topic. All right, next question actually comes to us from a Fool employee who is at Foolfest. My name is Mike. My question is, how do I know when the right time to have a second kid and buy a new house is? Never. No, I'm just kidding. Sean, what do you think? The answer is never. Sean, what do you think? Well, so I was looking at it and I was like, I don't have kids. I'm not qualified to necessarily. And you don't own a house either. That's that true. just shows how smart you are. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but so one of the one of the relevant factors that can help in this decision is just how much does a kid cost, right? So I think you can find this online, but the most recent studies or statistics say that the average cost to raise a kid from to 17 years old is $233,000, roughly. And, and where does that number come from? Do you know? It's the uh, Department of yes, Agriculture. Agriculture. Yeah, I yeah. just find that so funny. Got a bumper crop of kids coming up. <laughs> but Get them out in the fields. Yeah. In this sort of shorthand that I mentioned earlier, where you take your annual retirement spend and multiply it by a figure like 20 to 25 to come up with your lump that you need to save for, it's just an easy way to say, okay, if it's 230000 to raise a kid, Amortize that over the remaining life expectancy. That gives me that incremental average annual cost, and that'll just help you decide if you can save for that kid. Yeah, I would. For me, if I were talking to Mike about this in a financial planning context, I would say it starts frankly with your cash flow. Can you afford to do either? 
And then which is the priority? And I assume it's the kid, but who knows? You never know. He did just have one kid, didn't he? <laughs> Anyways, so I would. I mean, it really, you look at your cash flow. Can you afford both? If not, which one are you going to prioritize? And we've talked many times on this show that you, you can be a perfectly fine human being with a solid financial future without ever owning a house. So, in my opinion, it's fine to, to focus on having the kid and renting for a while until you've determined how many kids you're ultimately going to have, which school district you want to live in, and then focus on the house. And there's no like statute of limitations on when you can buy a house, but there is kind of a, a window on when you can have kids. Yeah, that's true. All right, before we head back to the mailbag, I want to thank Thumbtack for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Thumbtack makes it easy to find and hire skilled local professionals for any project on your to-do list. And there's no cost to search. There's more than 1,100 different services for your home or for events or anything in between. So maybe you don't want to mow your lawn in the million-degree heat. Find someone on Thumbtack for event planning or catering. You want a bouncy house? Yes. A personal trainer to help lose weight? Absolutely. I was looking through the site. They have like guitar lessons, dog training, everything wow. you would need for a wedding. Amazing. It was amazing. Have you ever used Thumbtack? It's really fun. No, I want to it's kind of fun. Uh, you should go check it out. Uh, after you submit a request, local pros will send you custom quotes for your project. Each quote includes their estimate, price estimate, business profile, customer reviews, and a personalized message. So. Check it out next time you have a project, really any project. So thanks again to Thumbtack for supporting The Motley Fool. Go to Thumbtack.com to find and hire local skill pros for just about anything you need. That's Thumbtack.com. All right, here's the next question. comes from Bill. My wife and I are facing the question of, do we invest in a long-term care insurance policy now? And they are incredibly expensive. So... What advice do you have for us in that situation? So I will add that Bill is amazing because he's also given me a ton of advice about what to do for our vacation to Hawaii. It's a, it, it was like, it went on for a mile. The email was amazing. So thank you, thank you, Bill, not only for your question, but also for your advice about our Hawaii vacation. Well, this is a tough one, really, because I mean, depending on which stats you look at, you can become very terrified about long-term care or feel like it's actually not that big of a deal. So one stat, according to longtermcare.gov, is that 70% of people turning 65 will need some sort of long-term care. So that sounds pretty scary. However, other stats indicate that of that care, only like 10 to 15% will actually be in a nursing home, which can be very expensive, anywhere from forty dollars to $80,000 a year. What most people need is someone to come over and help them with the so-called activities of daily living. So cleaning, shopping, toileting, things like that, which is not as expensive, but it does mean you have to pay someone like 20 bucks an hour to do that. So, where's that money going to come from? If you have a large portfolio, we're talking, you know, maybe half a million dollars or more, you might be able to pay for that out of pocket. If you don't have very much money at all, frankly speaking, the number one provider of long-term care services in this country is the government through Medicaid. So, this is not something that I necessarily feel comfortable saying, but some people do just say, I'm just going to let the government take care of it. You don't have much choice, by the way, at that point. You're not going to have choice at the best nursing home, but that's what some people choose to do. And it's a terrible way to live because you have to spend down all your assets to qualify for right. it. So yeah. yeah, it's not a great strategy. But generally speaking, long-term care insurance is for people sort of in that middle ground. But it's not cheap. You know, if you're if you in your fifties, it's going to cost anywhere from fifteen hundred to three thousand dollars a year. You wait until your sixties, 
like 65, you're looking at like 2,500 to $4,000. And depending on what study you read, something like a quarter of people who apply for long-term care don't get it because they already have some sort of health problem that's basically the insurance company says, we're not going to insure you. Um, so it is not cheap, but if you want to be in a position of having some backup coverage if you need it, there's certainly some value to that. Yeah, and you and you have to value your family. Most people will utilize their family to take care of the component that you're talking about, having someone come in and right. help with the ADLs. Yeah, 90%, by the way, of all that type of long-term care is provided by friends and family. Yeah, so you can save the expense, but then you're just sort of shifting it to your family as a burden. So that's something to consider. Another thing to consider is other than just direct long-term care, which is probably your best bang for your buck in terms of the value that you'll derive from the each dollar unit that you put towards the premiums. There are hybrid policies that exist now that serve the purpose of, of two types of insurance. You can do basically do a single payment or, or one sum payment into an insurance policy, and it creates a bucket of money that's there for you either for long-term care costs or as a death benefit to you if you don't utilize the funds. Because one of the risks of a long-term care premium policy is that you never end up using it, but you've spent all this money on the premium. So it gives you a way to try and cover two risks. It's not as valuable in terms of the per dollar. but Right. You're paying for the convenience of getting a, a hybrid long-term care life insurance policy. And, exactly. there, and there are more things like hybrid annuity in long-term care policies. So you know, if you were to buy those separately, it might be more efficient, but some people like to have the flexibility within the policies. But you need to go to an insurance agent to get this, because they would be pretty complicated. Yeah. Generally, my, my bottom line with long-term care is, if, if someone asks me about it, if, I, if they own their own home, they have you know, two, three, five hundred thousand dollars in home equity, that is something that can also use for long-term care, either through downsizing or reverse mortgage. So that always, for me, is part of the discussion of how you would pay for long-term care. If you have a big house that's worth a lot of money, you own it outright, you don't plan to tap the equity, that might be your long-term care insurance policy. Yeah, and just to give a little bit of perspective, in, in case you're curious about the hybrid policy, it, it could be close to half as much as a dedicated long-term care policy. So just want you to have all the facts. Yeah, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. All right. Tobin Anthony, Great Falls, Virginia. Hey, bro, did you really go to seminary? Yes. The answer is yes. When I was in high school, I either wanted to fly helicopters for the Coast Guard or be a priest. So I got accepted to the Immaculate Heart of Mary Seminary in Winona, Minnesota, as well as the Coast Guard Academy in Connecticut. I thought I'd give the seminary a try. I did it for a year, and then I transferred to Catholic University in Washington, D.C., which is how I ended up in this area. Obviously, I did not become a priest, but at one point I did teach uh, at a Catholic school for five years and taught religion. I was a higher-level catechist than the three nuns at the school, I'm very proud to say. So, have you ever actually flown a helicopter? I have not. I've been in one, but that was that's what I was going to do. Yeah. Oh. I just find it so hard to believe. No, I don't actually find it that hard to believe. That what, that I was going to be a priest? Uh, that you were going to go... I, well, I have a hard time imagining you being celibate. Um, <laughs> but I don't have a hard time believing that you would go into uh, a, a profession that like is there to help people, that is Gosh. primarily there to serve serve I'll, your fellow man. I'll take that as a compliment. Isn't Thank that you, currently? <laughs> Isn't that financial plan? Yeah, no, exactly. Oh, okay. That's a. I mean, that's a road that you still ended up doing that. You're still like right. in a in a job where you serve people and help them and help make their lives better. But um, I don't have to be celibate. But, but you, you also have a bunch of kids running around. <laughs> so best of both so worlds. Sorry, mom, I wasn't celibate. 
<laughs> I think she knows. Considering your oldest is in her 20s. I think, I think your mom figured it out by now. All right, well, that's the show. I want to thank you, Sean, for coming and helping us answer questions. Always really a blast. appreciate it. Oh, well, it's, it's, it's more of a blast for us. So that's the show. Keep those postcards coming. Our address is 2000 Duke Street, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. Eric from Knoxville, I want to thank you for sending a postcard from the Great Smoky Mountains. Oh, I love the Smoky Mountains. One of my favorites. Oh, be like Eric and make my day with a postcard. Again, our address is 2000 Duke Street, second floor, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. Sean, thanks again for joining us. Thank the show is edited full festingly. Something like that. By Rick Engdahl. Celibately. Oh. <laughs> he also has kids running around town. So, for Robert Brokamp and Sean Gates, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. 